Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. You're such a great and an awesome God. Lord, we thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in control of all things, and that nothing happens by chance in your kingdom. Father, I just lift up Cindy Siegel to you, Lord, and the entire Siegel family. Just pray that you would strengthen and encourage them during this difficult time. Lord, I know that when we lose loved ones that our heart breaks. But I thank you, Lord, that, Father, that we have the promise of heaven and the hope of heaven. So, Lord, we just ask that your will would be done. And if it be according to your will, that you would touch her, Father, and heal her. That you would be glorified. And if it's your desire, Lord, to take her home, that you would just comfort her family. Lord, I also pray for our time in the Word this morning, that you would be our teacher. That man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. Give us all ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Luke 23. Now, as we got to, we've been going, again, verse by verse through the entire New Testament. And on Wednesday nights, I encourage you to come out. We're going verse by verse through the Old Testament. We're in the book of Exodus right now. But last week we saw, and in the last few weeks, we were looking at Passion Week. And Passion Week are the final days of Jesus' life here on earth. And during his final hours now, that's what we're down to, we're seeing how he interacts with people in, the, in those final days. And so we're going to see next week in very clear picture just of the, the suffering that our Savior went through out of his love for us. He suffered and died not because they, they captured him. And we talked about this last week and who arrested who. They didn't arrest Jesus. They couldn't have. Remember when they came and they asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am. What happened? They all fell over backwards. Nobody could take Jesus against his will. He freely laid down his life out of his love for every one of us. And he's a God of love and a God of grace and a God of compassion. And he cares for us. But we saw last week that as we drew near, we're drawing near to the cross, four completely different reactions to the coming of the cross. First of all, we saw that when Jesus knew that the cross was coming, he knew he was going to be separated from the Father, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. And he went there to that place of suffering and torment. He, he sweated great drops of blood in just preparation and, and torment for what was about to come. So Jesus, in a time of difficulty, when the trial was coming, Jesus prayed. But then we see Judas, one of his followers. And you know what? As He looked at Jesus and didn't see Jesus fulfilling what he looked for in a Messiah. He didn't come and overthrow Rome and set Judas up as the treasurer of all Rome, which is the job he really wanted. What did he do? He didn't pray. He betrayed Jesus. He sold him out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And so we see Jesus prays and Judas betrayed. And then thirdly, last week we saw Peter. And Peter, again, was a man who will be used mightily by God. In the book of Acts, he's just an, an, an awesome guy. After Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, God uses him mightily. But prior to Pentecost, he was the, you know, the ready, fire, aim guy. You know, if anybody was sticking their foot in their mouth, it would be Peter. He was Mr. Let's go for it and then figure out the consequences later. And Peter made many, many numerous mistakes. And one of them we saw last week was, he was heavy. Because remember he said, you know, Lord, I'll die, where you, die for you. The Lord told him, you're going to betray me. And he said, no, Lord, I'll die for you. I, no way, Lord, I'd never deny you, no matter what. And then we see what happens when the soldiers came, that Peter was the one that drew his sword, and he, he fought with the sword about as well as he fished, because he went to cut a guy's head off, and he caught his ear, right? And we know that the Lord reached down and grabbed the ear and put it back on the man. And then we see later that Peter denied the Lord three times. And he denied him. Why? Because he was trusting in his own ability to serve God. He was trusting in his flesh. He fell in his area of his own greatest strength. His greatest strength was his boldness, but yet he fell when a little girl said, you're one of them. Oh, no, I'm not. When someone else said, you're one of them, he literally cursed and said, "And I don't know him. I don't believe in him. And we saw one of the heaviest verses in the Bible to me last week when he looked up after cursing the Lord, and it says that Jesus looked at him. His eyes met the eyes of Jesus. Can you imagine how that must have felt for Peter, having walked with him for three years, having boldly said, I'll never deny you, and then here he is at the very moment he's cursing the Lord and saying he doesn't know him. The rooster crows, he looks up, and there his eyes meet the eyes of our Savior. But the good news is that Jesus, after P Peter went away and wept bitterly, and that's the response we should have when we're convicted about sin. It should be brokenness and repentance. And that's what Peter did. But I love the fact that later in Mark it says that when Jesus was risen, he said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. And I love the fact that our God is a God of compassion. That even though Peter had totally blown it, he saw his repented heart, and he literally wanted to, first and foremost, to say, go tell Peter. Let him know, after those three days of the torment and weeping, that I've risen, that I love him, and I'm not through with him. And that should be an encouragement to each one of us, to know that our God is not through with us, even if we've blown it. So Jesus was heavenly focused. His eyes were on things above. 
Judas was physically focused and he betrayed our Savior. And then Peter was focusing on his own ability and he fell into sin. And at the end of the chapter last week, we saw that they mocked Jesus yet again. Then they brought him in and basically had an illegal trial in the middle of the night. They brought Jesus in and they had this trial that they're not supposed to have. And it was a religious trial. And they found him guilty. What did they find Jesus guilty of? They found him guilty of finding himself to be God. Amazing. They've been looking for the Messiah. They've been praying that He would come. They've been making sacrifices for centuries. And here He is standing before Him and they're convicting of basically Him telling Him of exactly who He was. So this morning we're going to continue on looking as we move towards the crucifixion. And as we do, next week we're going to really look at the details of His death and just how how significant it is. But I want to look at some of the, the people that He interacts with here in His last hours of His life. This morning we're going to look at Pontius Pilate and the interaction that he has with him. We're also going to look at Herod, and then finally Barabbas. Now next week, we're going to look at Simon of Cyrene, the daughters of Jerusalem, the thieves on the cross, the centurion, and Joseph of Arimathea. And I want you to know that, again, every one of these interactions should speak mildly to us, because nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. Each one of these was a divine appointment, and God can teach us something through each one of them. You know, the crucifixion was God's perfect and sovereign plan to restore sinful man back to holy God. In Revelation 13, he says he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so too were each one of these divine appointments we're going to look at this morning. None of them happened by chance. Let's pick up in verse 1 as we take a look at Pontius Pilate. Verse 1. And it says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. So now they've had their, their religious trial and they want to kill Jesus. They want to put him to death. But they know that they cannot do it. It's against the law for them to have the death penalty. And the only way the death penalty could come is they would have to take him and not have a religious trial, but have a political one. And so the whole multitude that's talked about here is the Sanhedrin. That 70-member council, the most religious people of the day, they're taking the Son of the living God and they're taking him in to have a, a political trial so that they might put him to death. You know what? Jesus was such a threat to these guys that they wanted him dead. They didn't just want him away. They didn't, they didn't want to just leave him alone. They said, you know what, we've got to kill him. Because you know what, people are following after him. And they wanted to silence the Savior. They wanted to bring him to this political trial. So Jesus had two trials, one Jewish and religious, one Roman and secular, and both of them would condemn him. Now it says they led him to Pilate. Now Pilate was the sixth Roman procurator over Judea. Some people portrayed Pilate as being some innocent bystander. When you think of Pilate, how many of you have ever thought of that before? You think he's just some guy washing his hands and he didn't really do anything and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Let me tell you something. Pilate was a wicked and a vile and an evil and a sinful man. Back in Luke chapter 13, it says that he went in and slaughtered a bunch of the Jews while they were making sacrifice to God. This guy was no innocent bystander. And here's the reality. When it comes to God, no one is an innocent bystander. No one. Every one of us has to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Every one of, nobody can just wash our hands and ignore Him and pretend like we don't have to deal with Him at all. And we're going to see Pilate trying repeatedly this morning not to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. He's going to try to send Him off to somebody else. He's going to try to have someone else make the decision. He's going to try to give the people an alternative. He's going to try to do everything in the world but make a stand for the Lord. And so Pilate, we see, is a wicked and vile man. And he, Jesus is brought before him. And now this, this trial is going to begin. Now, I want to say this about Pilate. He was a politician. That ought to describe him pretty well. A politician, in most cases, not always... Their motives are purely selfish. He was a man-pleaser. He wanted to find favor in the eyes of the Roman government and his Jewish constituents. He was an indecisive and double-minded man. Sounds like a few politicians you've probably heard of, right? I mean, it's tell these people whatever they want to get their vote, and then tell these people whatever they want. And it doesn't matter if I'm on both sides of the issue, and that's the kind of guy Pilate was. He wanted to make the Romans happy, and he wanted to make the Jews happy, and so he's this double-minded man who was very indecisive, and we're going to see that in his dealings with Jesus. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of three crimes, of misleading the nation, of forbidding the paying of taxes, and of claiming to be king. Now the first two were just 
flat-out lies. They had no accusations against our Savior, so they made things up. Do you remember that when they, when they brought him in and they said, should we pay taxes unto Caesar? Do you remember that? It was just a few weeks ago. And when they said that, they thought they had him trapped. Because they thought if he says pay taxes, then the Jews will be mad at him because he's going to be saying we should submit to Rome. And if he says don't pay taxes, then the Romans will come out and grab a hold of him as an insurrectionist. So either way, we've got him trapped. And then our Lord said, show me a coin. And that's significant because that means our Savior didn't have one. And they reached down and somebody showed him a coin and he said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Does that sound like he's forbidding them to pay taxes? If anything, it sounds like he's telling them that they should pay their taxes. Amen? But the lie comes along and they say, oh, he said not to pay taxes. One other note on that, you know, is the, the money was made in the image of Caesar. Whose image have we been made in? God's image. Amen. And so if we give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, in the image of Caesar, who should we be given to? We're made in his image, amen? And so we should be given unto the Lord. And so they accuse him and they lie about him. And then thirdly they say that he claimed to be a king. So they tell two lies and state one fact. And the reality is that Jesus is king, amen? He's king of kings, he's lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega, he's the beginning and the end. Besides him there is no other God. There's no other God before him, after him, or beside him. He is God. And so they come in accusing him. Now, it's going to be interesting to note that they make these three claims, but notice which one Pilate chimes in on. Pilate's not really worried about the taxes. And he's not really worried about whether or not he misleads the nation. He's worried about this guy claiming to be king. Why? Because who's the ruler of the Jews at this point? Or one of them? It's Pilate. Pilate's only concern was his own position. He's saying, now wait a minute. Run that third one by me again. What did he say? He said, he's like, oh, call him in here. I've got to find out what's going on. You've got to remember it's Passover. And at Passover time, millions of Jews would inhabit Jerusalem. And as they're there, everybody's tense and nervous that somebody may come along claiming to be the Messiah and try to overthrow the government. So they're very you know, sensitive to that. And so he calls him in, and he's going to ask him, again, purely from a selfish motive, verse 3, And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. You know, it's amazing to me that people say over and over that Jesus never proclaimed to be God. He never proclaimed to be the Messiah. And you can't, you can't read a chapter in the New Testament. It's very difficult to find one where you don't see clear evidence of him proclaiming himself to be God. It's hard to find one in the Old Testament that doesn't point to Jesus Christ being God. If you look in our Exodus study, as we're going through the tabernacle, everything in there points to Jesus Christ. You can't miss, there's no way you can miss it unless you blind yourself. And so Jesus is asked a clear question. And notice that he responds to this question where we're going to have some more, and he's not going to respond. And I believe the difference is that Pilate, I believe, is asking him out of sincerity. Are you the king? Now, his motives may not be pure, but he's asking him. Are you the king? And Jesus says, it is as you say. You know, in John 18, you get a clearer picture of this whole exchange because it was more than just one sentence. And he asked him, and Jesus asked him, are you speaking for yourself? Are you asking me this question because you want to know? Is that what you're asking me? And then Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. I have come into this world that the world, that I should bear witness to them of the truth. Now, in hearing this, Pilate then says, okay, he's a king, but he's, he's not worried about taking over in this world, so I've got no problem with Jesus. You know what, he's not a threat to my life, so just let him be. You know why the world has such a struggle with Jesus Christ today? Because when they see a cross, it convicts them. When they think about the things of Christ, it bothers them. That's why they want to take the Ten Commandments down from every building. They don't want any crosses up. They don't want our kids praying in school. Why? Because if people do that, it convicts them if they have to think about Jesus. In Pilate's case, all he cared about was his position, his title, his throne, if you will. When he saw that Jesus was no threat, he said, let him be. Let him be. Verse 4. He says, so Pilate said to the chief priests of the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He found no fault because he knew that his position was not going to be threatened. Verse 5. But they, and that's the religious leaders, were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. The Jews reject the verdict and begin to accuse Jesus all the more. Now, why are the Jews so upset when Pilate is not? Because Pilate does not see Jesus as a threat to his position, and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, do. 
They say, you know, if this Jesus keeps coming into the temple and turning the tables over and calling us a brood of vipers, after a while people are going to stop following us, right? I mean, if He keeps coming in and challenging us from the Word of God and we have no answers, if He keeps coming in and healing lame people and lepers and everything else, then we're going to be out of business pretty quick. We've got to do something about this Jesus. Pilate saw him as no threat, said, I find no fault in him. The, the Sanhedrin were worried about losing their position, and they're getting fired up. Hey, you know what? He's, and they're just throwing out accusations. He's all over Judea and Galilee, and they're just trying to find a way to bring accusation against our Savior. But watch this. Verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate finds no fault or threat in Jesus, and wanting to part, no part in the proceedings, he says, wait a minute, you're from Galilee? Now Galilee is, was ruled by Herod, and Herod would be in Passover, in, in Jerusalem for the time of Passover. And he says, you know what? Here's the deal, man. I'm going to get out of this completely. Let's just send Jesus on over to Herod. I can just wash my hands of it, and I won't have to make a decision about Jesus. I don't want to. And again, even though Pilate is going to try numerous times to put Jesus away and not to make a decision about him, eventually Pilate will make and have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. And let me just say this. If you're here this morning, you are going to, if you haven't already, you're going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Understand that no decision is a decision. Understand that if you're, oh, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking, you know, either you're for me or you're against me, the Bible says. There's no kind of saved. Amen? Either you know Christ, either you've been born again, either He's your Lord and your Savior and your King, or you're an enemy of His. Out of your own free will and your choice to reject Him. And so just as Pilate is going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ, so too do each one of us. We must make a decision. Is He Lord? Is He Savior? Is He King? Is He your best friend? Are you desperate for Him? Do you realize that only through His shed blood on the cross do you have any hope for life? Or is He just a religious symbol? A man who lived a long time ago. You know, the cross will either condemn us or save us. Amen? It's either a place of redemption or a place that will bring heavy burdens upon us. And so we see here that, that Pilate passes the buck. He's going to not make a decision. He's going to try to just ignore him, but ultimately he cannot. Verse 8. So he sends him to Herod. Now when Herod saw Jesus, who was ex he was exceedingly glad, for he desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle done by him. So Pilate's only concern was his throne. And Herod, Herod, let's remind you who that guy was. Herod Antipas is his name. There's many Herods. His grandfather was the one who when Jesus was born said, kill all the babies. So here's Herod, and who is Herod? Herod is a man who is living in an adulterous relationship, right, with his sister-in-law, and he married her, and now he's married to this woman that, in a, that he committed adultery with, and there was a man who came in and confronted him with this sin. Who was it? Who remembers? John the Baptist showed up and said, you're an adulterer. And he accused him of his sin and said, you're a sinner. Man. And he's the king, but John the Baptist wasn't too worried about position or titles. And John the Baptist came in and called him on it. And we know what ended up happening. John the Baptist ended up losing his head. Now, John the Baptist had a very near and dear relationship with Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was the forerunner or the best man of Jesus Christ. He was his cousin, right? Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. And there were the babies. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And you know, if Jesus were simply a man, we know he's 100% God and 100% man. He took on, he always has been God and he took on humanity. He's, he was tempted in all ways such as we were and yet without sin. He hungered like we have. He, he understood cold. He understood, you know, he was tempted, but he never fell into temptation. And you know what's interesting to me? Is when Jesus came in before Herod, here this man's going to accuse him. But you know, in my own flesh, you would think, man, this is the guy that beheaded my cousin. This is the guy that, went, that, that killed and tormented the one who baptized me in the River Jordan. This is the guy, you know what, I'm thinking, toad. I don't know. I mean, turn him into something, right? I mean, Jesus could do anything. Couldn't he just come in and smoke the guy anytime he wanted to? Of course he could. And you know what, that's why... That's just between God and us. Amen? You know, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. We need to leave vengeance in His hand. We would, you know, someone 
did great harm to one of my family members, and I had the power to smoke him. I, I'm afraid to admit that there's a good chance it might happen. But here with Jesus, what does he do? Jesus comes in, and Herod is looking for something. You know what he's looking for? A magic show. He says, ooh, yeah, I've heard about you. You're like healing people and stuff. Oh, this will be good. I've been looking forward to seeing you. Bring him in here. Let him see. Let do some tricks for me. Heal somebody. Heal a lame guy. You know, make somebody walk. Give somebody back their sight. I want to, let's have a little show. Let's have a program. Let's do something fun. Let's call everybody in. And let's watch Jesus do his stuff. He was seeking signs and wonders. You know what, though? When you see in the Bible, Jesus touched people individually. He didn't hold miracle crusades. Amen? He went out and He touched people. And He did it to point people to the Savior. And when He would touch them, God alone would be glorified. Now you've got these crusades and people are waving coats and breathing on people and slapping people's foreheads. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible. That's not scriptural. That's not what Jesus did. You know what? As Christians, signs and wonders should follow us. We should not follow signs and wonders. Amen? You know, if we're living sold out for Him then we are going to have an impact on the world around us. And just by the Spirit of God flowing through us, God may use us to touch people. But we don't chase after the signs and wonders. We don't follow after them. They should follow the believers as we're just faithful to serve God. We're not seeking after signs and wonders. We're seeking after our Savior. Amen? Because that's the one, He's the one who we love. He's the one who suffered and died that we might have eternal life. Then He questioned, verse 9, verse nine Then He questioned Him with many words, but He answered Him, Nothing. And the chief priest and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. So he begins to question Jesus, and in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, Like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. As they accused our Savior, he said nothing. They accused him, falsely accused him, lied about him, and he didn't respond. Now it's interesting to me that Jesus could, again, turn them all into rocks or frogs or dust or something. He could have just smoked them all. He could have blown them all away. He could have put on a brilliant legal defense. Do you think Jesus could have maybe just turned things around with just a few words? I think he might have been able to say, you know what? And you know, many times he did. People would bring accusations against him, and earlier in his ministry, he would just confront them. And you know what? They had nothing to say. But this time, as he was headed, his eyes were set like flint toward the cross. He was headed to the cross. It was time for him to be crucified. He's not going to defend himself anymore because he must go to the cross that you and I might have eternal life. And, be, and for him to go to the cross, he could not defend himself. And so like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. They accused him. Didn't say anything. Here the religious leaders of the day are, are accusing the creator of the universe. Now understand this. I've said this before and I'll say it again. A cult is anybody or anything that makes Jesus less than he is and man more than he is. And that's exactly what these religious leaders are doing. They're making Jesus less than he is and man more than he is. You know what? You are one million percent dependent upon Christ to get into heaven. Now you must respond to the opportunity for salvation. But it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You can't be good enough to get into heaven if you could be, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross. Amen? And here we see these guys vehemently going after our Savior. They're accusing him. They're, they're berating him. And he answers nothing. Why? Because his eyes were set toward the cross. He was busy about his Father's work to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. And he didn't need to respond to the false accusations of ungodly men. Jesus responded again out of his love for us. He, he sat there and was quiet and he took it. Now, what's our normal human response? It's to defend ourselves. It's to attack those who persecute us. But it says in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God and my strength. In whom will I trust? My shield and my, and my horn of my salvation and my stronghold. As Christians, we need to learn to let the Lord defend us. Tell me, am I the only one? Is it hard to do that? Am I, raise your hand if it's hard for you to let the Lord defend you. Don't you want to just get in there and get even? I mean, don't you want to at least say something? Now, I mean, and even in small things, I'll tell you some of the struggles for me. Something happened yesterday. This is really, really minor. But I have to confess to you, as your pastor, I reacted one way, praise God, but my thought life was going in another direction. This is so minor from the world's perspective, but it hurt my son, so it hurt me. I have one of my sons, I don't want to tell you his name, so I'll pick on him, but one of my sons is it's just, a, God's gifted him, and he's an incredible soccer player. And he's got five times as many goals as anybody else on his team. And, and, you know, he's got a great attitude and he has a lot of fun. And they named the All-Stars yesterday. 
And so at the end of the game, they're getting ready to name the All-Stars. At the end of every game, they give out an MVP for the game, and the coach is a great guy. And so three kids are going to make the All-Star team. And, and again, it's all about team play, not about just who scores goals, but the kids always guess who the MVP is, so he said, I'm going to name the three All-Stars, and everybody shouted out my son's name. And so he starts naming the this All-Stars. He names one other kid, and then everybody shouts my son's name again, and he names another kid, and everybody shouts my son's name again, and he named another kid, his own son. And so... You know, all these kids are making the all-star team, and I look over my son, and I can see that he, he kind of shrugs like it's no big deal. Then he comes over, and he puts his head on my chest and starts weeping. And it's just a soccer game. It's not a big deal. But you know what? Because my son was hurt, I was hurt. You know, because I love my son. I don't care about the all-star game. Who cares? But what I care about is my son. And he was, it was wrong, and, and, and the whole team knew it. The kids all came over. And, oh, and parents were coming over. And going, oh, that's not right. You know, and I said, and I thought, okay, now, my flesh wanted to go up to the coach and go, what are you thinking, man? You know, your son, does he know the right from the left? No, but you know, there's a, you know, but you know what happens is that's your flesh, right? But then my spirit's saying, opportunity to minister to your son, an opportunity to minister to the coach, an opportunity to be a godly example to everybody around you. And so I called my son over and I said, son, you know what? Sometimes things aren't going to be fair. But God is sovereign, and all things work together for good for those who trust in God and are called according to His purpose. And all things means all things. Even you not make... And I said, son, you played your best, didn't you? Yeah. Did you have fun? Yeah. Did you make the decision? No. So don't worry about it. It's okay. I said, and now how you react is going to really show the rest of the team where your character is. And, you know, the part of it, you know, they got a few more games, and, you know, my initial response is, I yank him off the team and see how well they play without him, you know? <laughs> Play one of the other All-Stars. Now, again, that's your pastor just being transparent with you, okay? But I didn't do that. This is my thought process. And then I'm like, no, that's not what the Lord would have us do. And so I said, go congratulate the kids that made it. And let's just, you know what? You just be a godly example. Let's just go out and honor the Lord and not get upset. Again, a small thing. But there's, those kind of things happen like all the time, don't they? And there's opportunities for us to jump in and want to give our peace and say, how can you treat me that way? And it's just not fair. And especially for your parents, when it happens to one of your kids, there's a heightened level of wanting to get even and protect because you're a mom and a dad and that's what we do. But the reality is, those are opportunities for the gospel. And here our Savior is being falsely accused and He doesn't answer. And as Christians, we should learn to let Him fight for us, not to fight or strive over that which is perishing, to remember that we are not alone in our trials and that our trials will help us to grow spiritually and our reactions to them will be an opportunity for the Gospel. I love this. This is a fact. Trials times time equals growth. And you can look at it in nature. In nature, you take an oyster, you put a piece of sand in it, irritation, and over time, what does it become? A pearl. You take coal and pressure and over time, what does it become? A diamond. And you know what? When you take a worthless item times a trial times time, it results in something precious. And in our own lives, as we go through trials and difficulties, as we struggle with them, you know, I've said this before, that a man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Amen? When we are broken, we become more valuable. Everything else, you know, when broken, you sell it to swap meat for a quarter, right? But you know what? When we become broken, we become more valuable because there's less of us and more of Him. And as we go through trials, it breaks us of our pride. It breaks us of trying to defend ourselves. It says, okay, Lord, you're faithful. You're in control. You knew this was going to happen. Whether it's, I just found out I've got cancer. I just lost my job. Or something more minor like your son not making the all-star team. Whatever it is, God wants to work through that and use you to be salt and light to the people around you. Next time you're mistreated at work, opportunity for the gospel. Amen? How am I going to react? Next time your neighbor is out of control, next time somebody doesn't give you what you deserve, you know, we don't want what we deserve, by the way, do we? I'm thinking no, because I know what I deserve, and it's, it's pretty hot there, and I don't want to go. Amen? That's what I deserve. I don't want what I deserve. I want grace. I want mercy. And if I want grace and mercy for me, shouldn't I be giving grace and mercy to others? Amen? Don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. So our Lord did not respond, and they vehemently went after Him. Then Herod said to his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So not only did they go after our Savior, but they, they became so bold as to mock him and to permit, permit his soldiers to dress him in a robe. 
He didn't get his magic show he wanted, so he mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. And our Savior's grace, mercy, and patience just blows my mind, especially, again, since this was the man who had put his cousin to death, beheaded John the Baptist. Why? For boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And yet Jesus still does not respond. They mocked him. Can you imagine? They brought Jesus up and he stood there and they mocked him. They, they made fun of him. They beat him. They did all these things to him. And you know what is, is heavy to me is I think about Jesus' restraint, but what about the Father? What about His restraint? I looked at my son and saw him crying yesterday and my heart was broken over something minor, not because of what happened, but because my, hurt, my son was hurting. Can you imagine the restraint of our Father as He saw our son, His son suffering? Amen? But why did He restrain? Because He loves you guys. Man, does He love us a lot. Amen? How do you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. What was paid for you? The Son of the living God came and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. How precious are you to God? Incredible. More than we can understand. Verse 12. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends. Isn't that interesting? With each other. For previously they had been at enmity with each other. Isn't it interesting that these guys become friends? You know what? What do they have in common? These guys didn't like each other, but they had something in common. A desire to see Jesus done away with. They came together. Why did the, Sad you know, the Sadducees and Pharisees, you see them together coming after Jesus all the time, that you would think these guys were the best of friends. Did you know they couldn't stand each other? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. The Pharisees, these guys couldn't stand each other. But you know what happened? When they had Jesus as a common foe, they came together. And isn't it interesting how the world's that way today? You see people that really don't care much for each other, but when it comes to attacking Christians, they're all on the same side. All of a sudden, the, you know, the Hindus and the Muslims are, feel the same way about the Christians. You know, people are doing things coming against the kingdom of God. And here we see the same thing. These guys have one thing in common. And they're drawn together out of their trying of Jesus Christ. Moving on, we're going to look now at Barabbas. The last person we're going to look at. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, You've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning the things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I, sent you, I send you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now it's interesting. This is the second time that Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Then he says, I sent him away, and Herod brought him back, and Herod found no fault fault in him. We can find nothing to accuse Jesus of. We find no fault in him. And so for the second time, he's going to make this proclamation. Still again, not wanting to deal with Jesus Christ. Not wanting to stand for him. So he's going to continue being the politician that he is, try to please the Roman government, and to please his Jewish constituents. And so he says, I find no fault in him. So Pilate has nothing he can accuse Jesus of, because there is nothing to accuse Jesus of. He pointed out again that Herod too had examined him and found nothing wrong. Verse 16. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it is necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. When Pilate doesn't get their, their, their desired response from the people, he attempts one more scheme to somehow resolve this dilemma. He would follow the tradition of releasing a prisoner to commemorate Passover in hopes of forcing the people to, to let Jesus go. So here's what would happen at Passover as a sign of, of grace, as a sign of mercy. They would take one of the Jewish prisoners and they would let him go. Now, what's interesting is he wanted to force the hand for the people to let Jesus go because he found no fault in him. So he brought the most vile, wicked, and heinous prisoner that he had, a man by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer, he was a robber, vile guy. So he brings him out, and you got Jesus standing here, and you got Barabbas standing here. You got the Son of the Living God, healed the lame, fed the hungry, ministered to the prostitutes and the poor, did nothing but love people, serve people, and lay down his life for people. Over here, you've got Barabbas, who murdered raped, pillaged, out of control, evil, wicked, vile human being. Pretty clear. And they have to choose. Which one do you want to have, do you want to let go? I'll let one of them go. Which one? You know what? He thought for sure they'd pick Jesus because who in the world would want Barabbas let out on the public? You know, over here we've got Charles Manson. 
And we can either let Charles Manson go or Jesus. Which one would you like to have back in your community? I'm thinking no one Charles Manson. What about you? But here's the reality that Barabbas is a picture of each one of us. Aren't we all sinful, wicked, and evil? The answer is yes. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, you might say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. And, you know, maybe compared to Charles Manson, you are, right? God grades on a curve. You got, you know, Mother Teresa up here and Charles Manson down here. And as long as you're the top half, you're probably pretty good. But it doesn't work that way. Because we don't, we're not graded against Charles Manson. Amen? He's not the plumb line. Who is? Jesus. And guess what? Compared to Jesus, how you doing? Not too good. Amen? You know, the word for sin is an archery term. I've shared this with many of you before. In the middle of a target is the bullseye. And when you take an arrow and you shoot it, wherever that arrow lands, the distance between the bullseye and where it lands is called the sin distance. It's the separation between perfection and where you are. And now the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So even if you're one of the best people around and you're a little closer to the target than maybe Charles Manson, the reality is you're still a sinner because the bullseye is Jesus Christ. And no, but none of us can hit that mark. Amen? And we're all desperately in need of Him. And so Barabbas is a picture of you and me. You know, you might say, well, I've never murdered anybody. The Bible says if you've ever had hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. You might say, well, I've never robbed anybody, but if you've coveted or stole, you know what I mean? We're all sinners. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much we've sinned, we've sinned and we've been separated from holy God. And so because of that, there must be restoration, and Barabbas is a picture of us. So who deserves to die on the cross that afternoon? Who deserves of that morning? Barabbas. Barabbas, no doubt, maybe that's where he was headed. Maybe this was his last morning on earth and he's headed to the cross. They bring him out before the crucifixion's about to happen. They've got Jesus over here. They've got Barabbas over here. Which one, which one do you want released? Now guess what? It wasn't really that the people cried out for Barabbas, which was vile in and of itself. But the reality was that it was foreordained that Jesus was going to go to the cross. It was time. And they didn't force him to go. He went out of his own free will and out of his love for us. Pilate thought for sure they picked Jesus. Pilate was wrong. The crowd didn't. And he says in Matthew 27, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And again, in spite of the fact that Jesus was sinless Son of God, He healed the lame, He raised the dead, the people rejected Him, and instead chose a murderer. And they all cried out, verse 18 at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion, made in the city, and for murder. They cried out and said, away with this man, give us Barabbas. Release Charles Manson and take Jesus to the cross. We want the sinful man back. We want the vile man back. We don't want Jesus here. Why? Because, you know, in reality, the sinful man won't convict you of your sin. You can continue to live in your sin. You can continue to live a life separated from God and it won't be conviction. But if you bring Jesus back, there's going to be conviction. Amen? Why? Because you're going to be comparing yourself to Him, not to Barabbas. And just being in Jesus' presence would be conviction. Verse 20, we're almost done. And Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Not only did the people choose the vile and wicked and dangerous murder to be put back into their community over Jesus, but they cried out that Jesus would die the most horrendous and torturous death known to mankind, crucifixion. Now we're going to talk about this next week in detail, the crucifixion. We're going to talk about what our Savior went through. We're going to talk in detail about scourging. Just a quick preview to that. Scourging killed most men. Forty lashes with a cat of nine tails. What would happen is they would tie you up to a post. They would tie you there, your feet and your arms, so that you were totally defenseless. They would draw back the whip, and when it would come, it had bone and glass and thing and metal, and it would grab into your skin, and when they pulled it back, it would just rip the skin away. And usually by the third or fourth lash, your organs were exposed. And most men died, bled to death around that post. And you know what? That's what they did to our Savior. Why? Because He loved people. Because He... Rose people from the, raised people from the dead because He healed the lame. You know why it happened though? Because He loves you guys. He 
He loves you so much. We think we go through difficulties and trials in our life. Think about what Jesus did for you. How much does He love you? And you know what? Man, it just makes me want to love Him more, doesn't it? Think, man, Lord, I can't believe You did this for me. For sinful, wicked David. And you know what else? He did it for Barabbas. And He did it for Charles Manson. If they would repent of their sin and turn to Him. It is desired that none should perish, no, not one. And so we see here that they cry out, crucify Him. And it's interesting that it says here, read on, look at verse 21. It said, crucify and crucify. And then he said to the, them a third time, why, why, what evil has he done? This is Pilate. What has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of, the, of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Now, the same, many of the same voices who five days earlier on Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, what were they saying? What, was they, what were they saying? Hosanna! Save now, we pray you. They called Him Son of David, which means Messiah. But they were looking for a physical Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome and give them authority and position. And when Jesus didn't satisfy the desires they wanted, they went from Hosanna to crucify Him. They went from save now we pray you to put him to death. And the sad part is that it says that the, the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So who's shouting the loudest? The religious leaders of the day are saying crucify the Messiah. The men who, you know, if they were today, they'd be writers of commentaries on the Bible. These were the, the religious men of the day. Everybody would say, oh yeah, that guy's... Oh, if anybody's going to heaven, it's got to be him. They had the robes on and the position, and people came and confessed their sins and brought tithes and all, and they made the sacrifices. And these guys were elevated to this high position, and they're the ones crying out, Crucify him. And that's why I encourage you almost weekly don't trust what men tell you. You know what? Study to show yourself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Whatever Pastor Dave teaches you on Sunday, you make sure that it's in this Bible. Amen? You don't follow men. If you follow men, men will lie to you. Men will deceive you. And there's too many men today that are pastoring churches that are tools of the enemy because they don't teach the Word of God. They've gotten away from the truth. This is the truth. Amen? This is the plumb line. This is why we teach the Bible, not the opinions of men. We don't vote on what we think the Bible ought to say. We read what the Bible does say. Amen? We don't use the popular opinion. We don't go by commit. You know, we don't have some authority back somewhere sending us a message of this is what we're supposed to teach. We already have what we're supposed to teach and it's in our hand. Amen? And so we need to know this because counterfeiters are going to come and false prophets are going to come and people are going to come they are going to try to teach you a lie and you won't know that it's a lie unless you know this. We must know the truth. You know, one of my things I pray for you guys every week in youth group, I used to say what you win them with is what you win them to. A lot of, as most of you know, I was a youth pastor for about 15 years. And a lot of youth groups, it's the flying Walindas and, you know, playing chubby bunnies and building marshmallow towers. And, you know, you do all this stuff to draw the, you know, skateboard parks and all that. And you do all this stuff to bring kids in, and then they get there and they don't teach them anything. And they, but they call back to the home office. We had 300 kids at youth group. Well, yeah, if you had Bozo the Clown there and free cheeseburgers, you could probably get 300 kids there. And what happens is that what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with Bozo the Clown and the, you know, every, and all, and the games and you know, watching Braveheart and all this stuff, and that youth group in town watching an R-rated movie, yeah, a lot of kids probably show up to that. But here's the thing. What you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with games and activities and stuff, all you want them to is a camp or a club. But if you win them with the Word, you want them to the Word. And my heart is that, you know what? that you guys would just fall in love with God's Word. And I want you to know that the number one place you're going to grow isn't Sunday morning or Wednesday night, though God can use this time to minister to you. And God has given people gifts that we use here on Sundays and Wednesdays. But the number one place you're going to grow is your own one-on-one time with Jesus Christ every single day. You know what? We don't eat once a week. Amen? The Bible says we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. It's in the book of Job. But you know what? What's interesting to me is that we don't pass by that fridge, at least I don't. If I go by the fridge, I'm thinking, that's pretty convenient. There's probably something in there got my name on it, right? And we make sure that our flesh gets fed. But you know what's sad? Is that if I, I don't, this never has happened in my life. 
you know, hey, I'm weak and I'm worried. I don't know what's going on. Oh, I, have, I know, I haven't eaten in two weeks. That's my problem. I need some food. I somehow make sure that my flesh gets fed. But you know what? I've done that spiritually. I'm blowing it. My concentration, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting angry all the time. I'm being vengeful. My attitude's not right. My, I, I'm not showing the love of God to people. Oh, I haven't been in the Word for two weeks. That has happened. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And you know what? I want to encourage you. Be in the Word. Read the book, Don't Wait for the Movie, right? We want to spend time in God's Word. Let's finish up. Last couple of verses. But they were insistent, and the voices prevailed. Verse 24. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but delivered Jesus to their will. Now it's interesting to me again that three times he said, I find no fault in this man. What evil has he done? And yet he still sent him to the cross, didn't he? Now, we know from Matthew's account that he went and he washed his hands and said, I'm washing my hands of this. It's not my fault. I'm not making the call. I can't be judged for this. I'm just going to pretend like it's not my decision. But yet he sent him off to be crucified. You know what, you guys? You can't wash your hands of Jesus. Amen? Pilate couldn't do it, and neither can you. We cannot just ignore him. We can't pretend like there is no decision to be made. Every one of us make, must make a decision about Jesus Christ. We must ask Him either to be our Lord or, or we just walk away from Him and say, no, I, I want to be on the throne of my own life. I want to be like the religious people of the day who wanted Him crucified because I want to keep my throne. I want to keep my position. I want to be the one in charge. Lord, you can't have my life. And Pilate washed his hands. But you know what? We find soon that that's not going to work because he'll stand before God one day. Every, every one of us in this room, you know, it's interesting to me that he said, we said to the people in Matthew 27, he said, what shall I do with this man who is called the Christ? That's what Pilate said to the crowd. What shall I do? And they cried out, crucify him. And that's the question for you guys. What are you going to do with this man who is called the Christ? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know that he loves you and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. No matter what you've done, he will forgive you. That's our God. You don't have to go clean yourself up and then ask God to forgive you. You don't, well, if I quit smoking, I quit drinking, and I you know, clean up my mouth and you know, start honoring my parents more and start doing better and quit being so lazy, then I can come to the Lord. Let me just tell you that He wants you to come now. Amen? He loves you. And I want to say this. If you're a Christian and Jesus Christ has just been, you know, He's a part of your life. But you know what? He needs to be more than a part of your life. He needs to be your life. Amen? My favorite verse in the Bible is Philippians 1.21 where Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which means my life is Jesus. And to die, it's only going to get better. Amen? And so we see here that today there are those who, who know that in their heart that Jesus Christ is the only way, but they're afraid of what the crowd around them will say. People say, man, you're so narrow. Dude, why don't you lighten up? What are you, some kind of Jesus freak? You know, I like that. Someone calls me a Jesus freak, that's good. I like that. Who better to be a freak for, right? People want to be a Raider fan or a 49er fan, which means fanatic. Let me be a Jesus fanatic, amen? Let me be a fanatic for him. Let me be identified with him above all else. Just as in the days of Jesus, the crowd still screams the same thing. We will not have this man to rule over us. We don't want anybody ruling over us. We want to be on the throne of our own life. Don't put anybody else in charge of me. I want to be in charge of me. And Pilate, seeking worldly reputation, what does he do? In Mark 15, 15, it says this. He was willing to please the people, and so he yielded to them and gave Jesus up to the cross. He was more worried about what men said. So, last week, we saw Jesus yielding to the devil, and he betrayed Jesus. We saw Peter yielding to his flesh, and he denied our Lord. And this week, we saw Peter yielded to the world, and he listened to the crowd, and he turned him over to them. So, this morning, here's what we looked at. We saw, and if the worship team will come on back up. This is what we saw this morning. Pilate went the easy way, but not the right way. Pilate was willing to just do what the world wanted him to do, and because he was a politician, and he didn't make a decision about Christ. He tried to wash his hands, he tried to ignore him, but he never repented and accepted him. Herod came seeking signs and wonders, and when Jesus didn't deliver, he treated him with contempt and sent him away. And then Barabbas is clearly a picture of each one of us. That's who we are, you guys. If you don't know it, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? And you know what? I'm so thankful that He loves me enough that He died for me. 
Jesus had a divine appointment with the cross and with those along the way. And sadly, Pilate and Herod missed it. And you know what? I want to say this to you guys. If, just, if I can give attention for one second. God brought you here this morning by divine appointment. Nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. Amen? Some of you are here because we've been praying that God would draw you here. And you know what? The Lord loves you and he wants to meet you here this morning. And so as the worship team is going to play a song, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Let's all bow our heads. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. You're such a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that, that you stood in the place and you took the place of Barabbas on the cross and you took our place on the cross. And Lord, we deserve it. You didn't. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. You're such a great and an awesome God. And Lord, just let every head bowed. If you're here this morning and you know that, you know what? Maybe I've been like Pilate. I've tried to wash my hands of Jesus. I've never made a commitment to him. I know about him, but I don't know him in an intimate and a personal way. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Pilate denied Jesus. Jesus would deny him in heaven. Don't deny him. He loves you. If you're here, it's very simple. Here's how you become a Christian. You don't have to do 47 steps. It's just saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And it's simply saying, I want Jesus to come into my life. I believe I'm a sinner. I confess it. I want Him to be my Lord. If you're here this morning, and that's your heart, just raise your hand and I'll pray with you. Every other Christian, just bow your heads and pray. Is there anybody here at all? God brought you here by divine appointment. He loves you guys. Is there anybody here at all? I also want to encourage you that are Christians. If you know that your walk with God has not been what it should be, you know that you know Him, but you're not walking with Him. You're not really making Him on the throne of your life. I want to pray for you as well. If there's anybody here at all that just says, you know what, Lord, I want a deeper walk with you. Lord, I know I haven't been where I should be. Lord, I know that I've, in some ways I've, I've ignored you or washed my hands of you, but Lord, I want to make you the king of my life. If there's anybody here at all, just raise your hand and I want to pray for you. God bless 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 all of you with your hands raised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for your love and your grace. I thank you for the many who raised their hands, Lord. And Lord, it's because we want more of you and less of us. As John the Baptist said, may I decrease that your spirit would increase. Father, we know that without you we can do absolutely nothing. So Lord, we just ask, Father God, you would strengthen us in our walks. Help us, Lord, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. And for those who raised their hands this morning, Father, I pray you give them a deeper desire to spend more time in your word, to spend more time in fellowship, to spend more time, Lord, just growing closer to you, that, Lord, they would have a, truly have a love relationship with you. The Lord, you would just be the first and foremost thing in their lives. And, Father, we know that, again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. And, Lord, you, you desire to minister to them. And, Father, I pray just draw them unto yourself. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're such a great and an awesome God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand up and close the worship song.